All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word that we have such incredible access to our Bibles, that we have even multiple Bibles on our devices in our pockets. We have uh, different translations. We have so much access to your word more than uh, any other generation throughout history. God, help us to take advantage of it, um, that we wouldn't take it for granted. God, thank you for your words. Help us to remember always that your words are truth, that they're trustworthy and reliable, that your word is infallible. It is not only without error, but it is unable to fail because you, God, are unable to fail. God, help us as we look into your truth to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Amen. What's up, Greg? Welcome back. All right. All these review questions are for Greg because he missed last couple weeks. <laughs> for him specifically. All right. So, Greg, <laughs> why did Jesus expect to, or yeah, why did Jesus expect to find fruit on the fig tree? Not just for Greg. Anybody can answer. Ooh. Remember, we looked at this last week. It wasn't the season for figs, and yet Jesus approached the fig tree expecting to find fruit. Was the preseason figs that are really good. Yes, the preseason figs. So it was in leaf. The tree was in leaf, and the the buds for the fruit come before the leaves, and then they mature and progress. And it was also the time of the Passover. So just because of the the time of the year, we know that yeah, it was this really good preseason fruit, um, which looked. Uh, the, the tree from the outside, it looked really good externally. Like from a distance, you could see, okay, well, there's leaves on this tree, right? But then he got up further and examined it and was disappointed to find out that it had no fruit on it. And what was Jesus illustrating in the cursing of the fig tree? Is he just in a bad mood? But what? Yeah, it wasn't producing anything. And he was using that picture of the fig tree to illustrate his judgment against Israel. Uh, because this picture of the fig tree, this story of the fig tree, should be understood in connection with the cursed little temple, which takes place immediately after this. And then Mark circles back and talks about how Peter walked back and saw the fig tree and said, hey, Jesus, that's a fig tree that you cursed. And so we have one of those marking in sandwiches where we have fig tree, temple uh, cleansing, and then fig tree again. And so all those should be understood together as Jesus coming to uh, pronounce judgment upon Israel, which uh, really started with the temple and him going to cleanse out the temple. But in 70 AD, that's when it really took its full effect, when the temple was laid bare, not one stone was left upon another. Uh, this was what was being illustrated with this picture of the fig tree. And what was wrong with what was going on in the temple? Jesus went in and, and cleansed it. He flipped over the tables. He kicked everybody out. Why? Yeah. I remember, it, was, it had become known as the bazaars of Annas, um, the, the high priest. He just came in and turned it into a marketplace, right? And 
inflating for the, the financial exchange. If they wanted their half shekel, they had to pay, you know, double that to get it. And then the whole animals and the markup for the animals. Uh, yeah, bunch of um, it just total corruption. Jesus wasn't going to put up with it. And people that were just passing through nonchalantly, acting like it wasn't anything holy or sacred, it wasn't in temple, they're just using it as a shortcut to get from point A to point B. Alright, and this last question, you don't necessarily have to answer out loud, more just to get you thinking and pondering. Have you been praying in accordance with Mark 11.24 this past week? Mark 11.24, uh, we kind of rushed through this last week. It says, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Um, I can tell you that I haven't been praying in accordance with that verse, and that's why I threw that up there, because I've been convicted by my lack of doing that. I've been listening to a book by uh, R.A. Torrey, and he said something in it to the effect of, why should we expect God to answer our prayers when we less than half expect him to do what we ask. And I often find myself in that kind of position. Not that I neglect to pray. Um, I'll, I pray because, you know, that's my, my Christian duty. That's what I'm supposed to do. I want to talk to my Lord. But when I'm asking, especially for prayers of salvation for people, I'm not always asking with the full expectation that, okay, well, he's going to save these people. Um, and I know that his will is perfect and that he's not going to save somebody just because I pray for him to save somebody. But I oftentimes think I overcorrect. We talked about how this section at the end of, or towards the end of Mark 11, has been misused and mistreated by a lot of people to kind of treat God as a genie, to have whatever we want done just because we pray and we ask it and we expect, well, he has to give it to us now. And I think that in my pushing away from that position, I've sort of overcorrected and I don't always ask in faith that God will do what he says he's going to do. A couple of verses we quoted last week um, for a different reason. Um, in John 14, 13 and 14, it says, whatever you ask in my name, and that's what I was focusing on, that when we ask of something of God, we need to ask in his name. We need to ask according to his will. But the rest of that verse says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So we have this incredible, beautiful promise from God. And I, for one, um, don't always approach my prayer life with that expectation that God is going to answer those prayers when we are asking in his name or John or first John 5 14 and 15 um, says this is the confidence which we have before him and confidence to have that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we do not and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have the request which we have asked from him so we do have these incredible promises of prayer in scripture um, let's be careful not to overcorrect from the wealth, health, and health, wealth, and happiness type of people, the prosperity gospel, um, to realize that we have a, an incredible blessing and uh, resource in prayer. It just needs to be understood correctly. Any thoughts or questions on that?
Yeah, pray for my 90-year-old grandma. She's going in for surgery, right? Okay, well, yeah, she's going to get out of surgery. Maybe she'll turn 91, 92, and, like, death is a real thing, right? And, and people die, and the body decays, and that's part of life. It's, like you said, not bad to pray for those things, but I think we can be uh, more thoughtful in our prayer life and pray for more eternal issues alongside of the temporal. Jerry and then Andy. Believe that they are changed. Because of their past life. But we have one of those too. Yeah. <laughs> we have to remember with prayer, we're not trying to change God's mind. We're not trying to change his will. We're trying to align our will with God's will. Uh, keeping that in perspective will go a long way. Andy. So, um, Luke 11 and 18 are good reminders of that. The persistent widow before the judge and the annoying friend uh, going to his friend's house and asking for bread and the friend doesn't get up because he wants to give him bread but because he's annoying right and he's trying to sleep with his kids and uh, we need to be constantly going before God with these things all right good well let's get into our study we've got a lot to look at today let's start by looking at Mark eleven twenty-seven through 33 and go ahead and read those for us it says they came in again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But, shall we say, from men, they, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So right off the bat, in verse 27, we see that again they came to Jerusalem. So remember, just keeping in context what we just reviewed, that they just went, Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the temple. He's causing a ruckus in Jerusalem. And right after this, he goes back. He doesn't, I have to sneeze so bad and I can't sneeze. <laughs> he's, he's not trying to hide uh, from the people, right? He disrupts the temple, goes out, does a little bit of teaching, <coughs> and then immediately comes back. And um, he's confronted by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And when did we last see the chief priests and the scribes mentioned in the text? What was going on when we last saw them? Yeah, back up in verse 18, right? The chief priests and the scribes heard this, that Jesus uh, was not only upraising the, the tables, but he was teaching against them. So they heard about this and they began seeking how to destroy him because they were afraid of him. So they had charge over the temple that Jesus had just come in and cleansed and recognized that his cleansing of the temple was a judgment against them and what they've allowed. Uh, they were afraid of Jesus and his influence that he had over the crowd, uh, the people whose defense he was coming to, saying, you guys are taking advantage of all these people. You guys shouldn't be practicing these uh, 
these different ways, like we were just talking about, taking and inflating the, the cost of the goods and the exchange rate, and the people were getting behind him and cheering him on because they were the oppressed crowd, and he was coming to their defense. And so now in verse 28, um, the, these same people who were upset at him previously, he's now come back, and they begin asking him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do these things? And so remember that the priests and the scribes, they were operating on a skewed sense of authority and credentials, what it means to be somebody who has the ability to speak authoritatively. I'll turn to chapter 1. Will somebody else start making their way to 2 Corinthians 3? I'll grab that in a moment. So back in the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, back in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, says that they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, and he was, as he was teaching them, as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus was already recognized from the very beginning of his ministry as being different and distinct in his ability to teach and the way that he taught, uh, not just like everybody else, but he taught as somebody who had authority in and of himself. In verse 27 of the same chapter said that they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So his teaching produced fruit, right? He wasn't just out there talking. Uh, he wasn't just a, a fig tree with leaves on it with no fruit, like we had read previously. Uh, his teaching produced fruit. The demons obeyed him. The seas and the wind obeyed him. Uh, he, in chapter 2, had the authority to forgive sin. And all the other scribes, they would just teach based on their own authority. They would say, well, I have my, my degree from rabbi such and such. Or I went to this synagogue, and this is where I got my teaching. Or they would quote other rabbis rather than teaching of themselves. Jesus taught authoritatively. And this is very similar to what we looked at several months ago now in our Sunday morning teaching in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Somebody have 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 for us? Thank you. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Amen. So yeah, these false apostles in Corinth, they were doing the same thing. They were saying, well, where is your, your letter of recommendation, Paul? Because we have this letter from these other churches or these other people. Uh, this is our, uh, our proof that we're able to teach, right? And Paul says, no, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. I don't have a letter. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, you guys, you are my letter. Uh, you can go back and tell those false apostles to take the hike because their letter doesn't mean anything. Uh, I have fruit to back up my ministry. I don't just have some weightless letter that somebody has made up, right? Um, and here, these self-righteous priests and scribes back in Mark 11, uh, they thought that they were the authority, right? They're asking Jesus, where's your authority? They're thinking that they are like the standard of authority. Uh, just like 
uh, Fauci says, I am the science, right? They're saying, I am the authority. And coming before Jesus, asking him for his credentials, asking him why he has the ability to stand up and to teach and to come in and to overthrow their tables, uh, they are uh, pretty jealous. And we've already seen that they were afraid of Jesus and his influence that he had there. And in verse 29, we see Jesus' response. It says in Mark eleven twenty nine that Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus kind of flips the script on them. He puts them back on the defense, right? They're asking him these questions, and he's going to turn around and ask them a question. So even in posing this question, Jesus is displaying his authority, that he's refusing to subject himself to their questions. He says, no, I'm, I'm the one who's going to ask the questions here, right? Let me ask you this one question first, and if you can answer this question then I will turn around and answer your question. He makes his answering of their question conditional upon their answering his question first. And he asks them in verse 30, this is a question he has for them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And then get that, he says, answer me. Go ahead and answer. Uh, that's pretty authoritative, right? And uh, we see their response in 31 through 33, they're, again, they're on the defense, and they're starting to stumble backwards, not really knowing how to answer or what to say. It says in 31, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So, notice that they didn't turn to their Bible for their answer, right? They didn't ask God, okay, well, John, is he from heaven or is he from man? Uh, rather, they all got together and they were considering themselves what was the truth, right? Remember what John said about himself when he was presenting his ministry to the people? He said that uh, he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, right? Quoting Isaiah. And then uh, he was prophesied by Malachi as being the one who was preparing the way of the Lord. He was very bold and out front in saying these things. He wasn't hiding his identity. He wasn't hiding who he was, um, where he was from. The scribes and the priests, they just weren't accepting of who he was or where he was from. They didn't test or consider these claims, but rather they considered and reasoned these things amongst themselves, Right? It's kind of like Jesus asked them this question and they delayed in answering Jesus' authoritative question. They said, well, just give us a minute. Let us walk off to the side and uh, consider amongst ourselves. Let us reason amongst ourselves. And uh, when I read this, I think of the Shark Tank, right? That TV show and people like leaving the Shark Tank um, and saying, okay, well, we're going to leave this pressurized area and we're going to go and talk amongst ourselves for a minute and then things kind of get messy and it seems to me like they're wanting to get away from the authoritative uh, aspect of Jesus' question and think amongst themselves and, and wonder and figure out how it is that they should answer and I really don't see Jesus operating that way when he was asked a question you know this, this coin is it a coin that we should give to, to Caesar or not uh, I don't think he took time to sit down and you know, seek his disciples and ask them, what should we say, right? But he just said directly, automatically himself, that 
this is the answer to your question. Yeah, he has the, the objective authority of God's word, saying that when John was prophesied beforehand, he, was come, he has come and he was sent, and he was sent to uh, be the, the forebearer of Jesus himself. And yeah, we're told several times throughout Scripture the reason for their coming to Jesus. They were seeking to test him. They were seeking to trip him up um, to try to kill him. They weren't asking these questions from a, a genuine spirit. Uh, they were, their response was very calculated and conniving and scheming. Not a straightforward, honest response. Uh, not a legitimate response. And um, I definitely don't like when somebody's that way with me. I'm sure you guys don't either. When somebody's trying to, you know, beat around the bush or uh, trying to stroke your ego or, or please you, trying to, again, just be calculated in their response but rather, the, rather than just being honest and straightforward, and this is how it is, this is what I believe, or the way I see it. Yeah, yep, that's a, a good way to go about things. And he did it often, answering questions with a question, trying to get to the heart or the root of the issue, the foundation, not just the, the surface stuff. Yeah, they're not looking for truth, they're looking for debate points, right? They're looking for appearance, how do they look in front of other people, and how can they tear this other person down? So in verse 32, um, it says that they didn't... It says, but shall we say from men? Um, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Do you think that they themselves considered John to be a real prophet? Not likely, right? Well, they were arguing with John yes. fairly regularly. Yeah. Again, they not, weren't seeking truth, Jewish right? People, the... And let me share with you this quote from Josephus, who wasn't a Christian, uh, just a Jewish historian. He says, Now when many others came in crowds about him, or to follow after John, uh, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion for they seemed ready to do anything that he should advise. So the people, like we read here, they were definitely following after John. They believed that John was a prophet. They uh, listened to John. But they didn't listen to John. In fact, if they did listen to John, if they thought that John had been from heaven, if they thought that John had been from God, then they would essentially be conceding the fact that Jesus was from God because that's what John preached, right? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus. He says, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. He is greater than I. I must decrease. He must increase. It's all about Jesus. And so if they believed that John was from heaven, then they would essentially be believing that Jesus himself was from heaven also. All right, so also realize that John, he didn't have any credentials either, right? John uh, was in the same boat that Jesus was in. Uh, his authority was from heaven. It was from God. And so that's why Jesus kind of points him back to John the Baptist because uh, he's in the same boat. He is, John the Baptist was from heaven. Jesus is sent from heaven. Uh, and their authority comes from God, not from man. And we can also be... Uh, subject to fall into this kind of trap, thinking that people have to have some kind of certain authority, right? Looking for some kind of 
special degree that somebody went to a certain school or um, have has been published that they hold some kind of priesthood that they have their hands laid on them um, our authority needs to come from the word right this is our sole infallible source of authority and we need to be careful of playing these same kind of games and tricks that the scribes and the Pharisees were playing. We need to appeal to the word of God as our highest standard of authority. And then in verse 33, it says that answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So notice here that Jesus was honest in his response. Uh, he didn't just repeat them and say, well, I don't know either. He answered with full integrity, but he refused to play their games. He didn't owe them anything. He didn't owe them a response. He didn't have to answer their request. He knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to play him and trying to trick him. Um, and he wasn't about to play into their hands prior to when he wanted to, right? When his hour came, has come. Uh, ultimately, he does, right? The, the son of man lays down his life. Nobody takes it from him, but he uses the, the sin of men to accomplish his purposes. And he refuses here to give what is holy to dogs, to cast pearls before swine, and allowing them to trample them under his feet. And he does exactly like he um, encouraged his disciples to in being um, as sly as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Um, he's not willing to play into their hand, at least not at this point. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on to chapter 12? Yeah. And Nicodemus came to Jesus by night because it was costly to come to him. He knew what it meant. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, seemingly a, a disciple later on, after he realized, yeah, this is my Lord, but we don't have any evidence that he came to him before that when it was a little bit more costly. Andy, we obey God rather than men, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're just like if Jeremy were to call up and say, hey, you need to do this. You say, no, we're, we're not under your authority. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, we have a, a higher authority, a different authority, right? Yeah. All right, let's dip into chapter 12. And later on in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul will get into and he'll kind of give his, his rap sheet a little bit. Uh, but his... <coughs> His ultimate authority is the Bible. Uh, even when he says that, he says, let me just be be foolish for a moment. Let me play the foolish man for a minute. So that is a fool's errand for sure. All right, so Mark chapter 12 um, starts off by saying that he began to speak to them in parables. Remind me, why did Jesus speak in parables? What was the purpose of him speaking in parables? So the hearing, they wouldn't understand. Okay. And so the seeing, they wouldn't see. Good. How do you know? Show me the money. <laughs> where where do we read that in the Bible? Do you remember? Even in, in Mark, we've looked at that. Anybody recall? What's that? Close. It's good to be able to point to Scripture and to give a defense, right? All right. Remember this. All right, good. Jerry got it. 4.12. So, yeah, Mark 4.10 through 12 says, 
As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So, exactly the verse you quoted, Andy. And then, a little bit further down in verse 33 and 34, it says, Many such parables he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. So parables were meant to reveal truth to certain people while simultaneously concealing that truth from other people. And I want to go back and look before we get into this parable. Uh, we don't have time to get into that now. We covered it back then. That was like a whole lesson because... Yeah, and and he has other bigger cosmic purposes as well. He was going to use these very people to crucify. Yeah, yeah, these same people who were once cheering Hosanna in the name of the highest, right? The son of David. They were just days later shouting, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" So he was still he was leaving seeds for the future, but he was still using these people for his purposes. Amen. All right, turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 5. I want to look at this Old Testament parable and read this because it's related to both the parable of the fig tree in chapter 11 and the parable of the vineyard that we'll read here shortly in uh, Mark chapter 12. So back in Isaiah chapter 5, I'll go ahead and read the first seven verses. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved, I just said beloved and then beloved. Did that bother anybody? It bothered me. All right. <laughs> a song for my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And sound familiar to the fig tree, right? It wasn't producing anything. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not, that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground, much like the temple did when Jesus went in and overturned the temple. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. Its briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but Behold, a cry of distress. So again, this section from Isaiah 5 is closely related to both the fig tree and this parable of the vineyard in Mark chapter 12. Uh, let's go ahead and read this vineyard of the, uh, this parable of the vineyard in Mark chapter 12. So again, in 12.1, it says that he began to speak to them in parables. So this is a parable we're told there plainly, right? A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it 
and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Sounding very familiar, right? At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. This was common for somebody, a landlord, to rent this property out. Um, and the people who take care of the property, they take care of the garden and uh, manage everything in the farm. Uh, he's to come back and to collect some of that profit, right? That's his profit. Starting in verse 3 again, it says, They took him, this slave, the servant that he sent them, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of a vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. He will give the vine growers to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And so before we get fully into this parable, we need to first understand and take care not to push parables beyond the primary point that they're intended to communicate. Uh, we can easily get ourselves into trouble when we start to dissect peripheral aspects of parables that aren't the focal point of the story. Uh, let me share with you this quote from Robert Simon Quilkin. He says that parables are a special story form designed specifically to teach a particular truth. In the case of a parable, it is not legitimate to treat each detail as having a spiritual application. Parables contain many details that are not intended to teach truth at all. They do not have spiritual significance. Those details should be identified and set aside. So let's go through and let's identify the different people who are part of this parable and who they represent in the parable. So we see the, uh, the owner, the planter of the vineyard, and we should understand him as representing God, right? God is the owner, the planter of the vineyard. The vine growers or the tenants are representing the Jewish leaders. Again, this is right along the lines of the parable in Isaiah chapter 5. And in verse 2, we read about the harvest. At harvest time, he, the, the owner, sent a slave to the vine growers. So the harvest represents an expectation of spiritual fruit. That's when you expect to see fruit, right? At harvest time. So it was harvest time, and the owner expected spiritual fruit. The slaves are representative of the Old Testament prophets that God sent to Israel time and time again. He sent them these prophets, and they beat them. They killed them. They sent them away um, over and over again. In this parable, it says um, in verse 5 that they were um, beating some and killing others. Um, oh, and so with many others. So some they beat, some they killed. With many others, they 
continued this practice. Let me read these verses to you in Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26, just kind of summarizing how God has sent these prophets and how they've been accepted. Jeremiah says, Since the day that your fathers came out to the land of Egypt until this day, so pretty much forever, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks. They did more evil than their fathers. So again, God's continually sending these prophets, telling his people Israel uh, his desire for them, telling them what they should do. And they did more evil than even their fathers. They didn't listen to them, didn't incline their ear to them. In Acts 7, Stephen, as he's being tried right before he is martyred, he says a similar thing. He says, you men are stiff-necked. What boldness he has to stand up and say that. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Uh, He wasn't mincing his words. He was telling them very plainly, God has sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. You've taken, you've killed them. That's what your fathers did. You guys are doing the same thing. And they got mad and they gnashed their teeth and they took him out and they killed him, right? Just to prove his point, um, uh, they took him and killed him. What's that? Yeah, yeah. You're wrong. Let me show you. Let me prove you wrong by by killing you, by killing the the prophet of God that he has sent to us yet again. Uh, how ridiculous, right? All right. Um, in the the parable, obviously the son is representative of Jesus. Um, Mark didn't mince his words about who Jesus was back in Mark one eleven. Uh, it we're told. Jesus at his baptism said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Again, in Mark 9, 7, he says the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, Jesus is the son of God. He's a son in this parable that is sent after all these prophets have been killed and rejected. Um, in verse 6, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. So Jesus is telling this story, illustrating uh, his own coming to them and what they're about to do to him. And then last of all in this, uh, this parable, we read about the, the others in verse 9. It says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. The others here represent the Gentiles, represent the church how the church is, how the gospel is going to be opened up for the church. Remember Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless him, that he would give him a nation, um, and he did that. Jesus came to the Jews, and they didn't receive him. His own rejected him. Remember, uh, they said, you are doing your work by the power of Beelzebul, right? By the power of Satan. And they rejected the work and the ministry of Jesus. And so he turned and he ministered to the Gentiles as well. 
here going into the temple, uh, he has begun this act of judgment on Israel and said, okay, well, you guys have rejected all these prophets before me. You're now rejecting the Son of God himself. And he's turning to the Gentiles. Romans 11.25 says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, something that was previously not known in the Old Testament, that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So Israel, by and large, has rejected their Messiah. They have rejected Jesus partially for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So he's opened up the door to the nations, opened up the door to the church age, and when everybody has come to the Lord in the church age, then all Israel will be saved. They will have a a realization of the Messiah. They will have an acceptance and embrace of their Messiah, and it will come full circle. And Israel will once again embrace their king. All right, so kind of summarizing this, now that we have a a picture of all these different players in this parable that Jesus is laying out for the scribes and uh, the priests, we can see that God has been incredibly long-suffering with Israel. He's been patient with them, even though they've been idolatrous, even though they've uh, committed infidelity against their Lord. Uh, Thinking back to the history of Israel, remember Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, uh, he was a deceitful, conniving man, right? He obtained his birthright uh, fraudulently, and God still blessed him. God still used him to bring about this chosen people. Moses was talking to God on Mount Sinai for a, a total of 40 days, and while he was up there, the nation of Israel took and they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is God who brought us out of Egypt, right? How idolatrous, how wicked and sinful. Uh, They were too fearful to go in and to take possession of the land that God had promised them, that he had brought them to. After Joshua, God gave Israel judges, but the people continuously rebelled against these judges, rebelled against God, and they continued to do what was right in their own eyes, just this cycle, this circle of turning against God and rebelling against him. Not long after the judges, Israel demanded a king, just like the other nations. They wanted to be like everybody else. And they got a full three kings in before the nation was split into two. And they had Israel in the north and and Judah in the south. And every one of Israel's kings was wicked and evil and idolatrous. And half of Judah's kings refused to and, and failed to follow after the Lord. And then even in the midst of God judging them in sending Assyria and Babylon to take them captive. God still sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they refused to listen to these prophets. They refused to listen to the Lord. Um, They were uh, hard-hearted people who didn't listen. And in telling this parable, now that the Son has come, that the Son is here, the Messiah is here, in telling this parable, Jesus indicated that he was fully aware of what they intended to do to him. He wasn't taken off guard by their deceptiveness. He knew the, the questions that they were asking. They were trying to entrap him. Um, he, he's not surprised by this at all. Um, he knows that these are, are wicked shepherds, false teachers, priests, and scribes who intended to kill him. And 
some have taken this parable too far, just as uh, McQuilkin warned us not to do. And they've suggested that because the owner in this parable seemed ignorant of the fact, kind of like, oh, well, I'll, I'll send another prophet, and they'll listen to him. I'll send another prophet, and they'll listen to him. I'll, I'll send my son, and maybe they'll listen to him. So they've taken this parable too far, and they've suggested that maybe that's how God is, that God is somehow ignorant of the fact that his son was going to be killed, right? Uh, this is not the case. We shouldn't take it that far. Some have also suggested that because the son in the parable was thrown out of the vineyard, that means that Jesus is going to be, he had to have been thrown out of Israel, that he was killed outside of Israel. Again, we don't want to take parables too far in that direction, right? We need to stick to the main point of the parable. Um, we know that God is all-knowing. Nothing in this parable should should suggest to us that God doesn't know these things. And this all-knowing aspect of God, the fact that he is omniscient, is revealed to us and reflected in the psalm that Jesus quoted in verses 10 and 12. Uh, he quotes this from Psalm 118, 22 through 23. And it says, Have you not read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. So he knew he was to be rejected. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus, knowing that he was going to be rejected, uh, sets this parable before them to let them know that they've not only rejected all these prophets, they've not rejected the Son, they've rejected God himself. And I want to read to us First Peter chapter 2, where Peter picks up on the same language of the cornerstone. And he talks about what it is that we do with Jesus and how, yes, he is the, the cornerstone of our faith. He is a cornerstone of the church, but not for everybody. Peter, uh, the same man who is giving these words to Mark as he's writing them down, right? Peter in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 says, For this is contained in scriptures, in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, talking about Jesus, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, the one who is the cornerstone, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disappointed, or disobedient, rather, to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." So the one stone, Jesus, who is the, the chief cornerstone, is for those who believe the chief cornerstone, but for others, he is a, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, because people trip up over him. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand that he was the Messiah. So he's either cornerstone or stumbling stone, depending on our acceptance of him, our embracing of him. And we read at the end of our passage that these uh, priests and scribes, they were seeking to seize him, for they were fearful of the people. They understood. Remember that Jesus, in his parables, he didn't want them to understand, but here he wanted them to understand, and, and they got it. They understood that he was speaking this parable against them, and so they left him and they went away. This isn't the first time that they're seeking to seize him, seeking to kill him, right? We've seen this all throughout, all the way back in Mark Three verse six says the Pharisees went out immediately and they began conspiring against him with the Herodians. Same thing we saw back in eleven eighteen. Same thing we've seen throughout. And uh, the Herodians are a group that we're going to look at next week. 
in verse 13, it says that they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians in order to trap him in a statement. Even after Jesus pointing this fact out to them, letting them know, God has been coming to you over and over again. I'm here as a son of God to present this to you. They still wanted to seek him, to to seize him, to kill him. And we're going to look at how they team up again with the Herodians next week to do just that. Let's pray and we'll continue to fellowship and worship.